my name is Yanira Muga, co-chair for the WeCAPS Latin America in Targeting Working Group. Welcome from our monthly uh, to our monthly webinar today. It's a sunny day here in DC. We are very honored to start a new series of three webinars focused on Latin America and children's future. We are going to discuss and talk about human trafficking, organized crime, and finishing with the last one with border uh, crisis and immigration. Uh, today, we have four guest panelists and great moderators who are going to discuss the first series, which is uh, human trafficking situation, what we are doing and what we need to do in order to mitigate and combat uh, this crime against humanity, especially children in Latin America. Uh, WICAPS is a 501c3 organization dedicated to promoting the leadership and professional development of women of color in the fields of international peace, security, and conflict transformation. We at WICAPS believe that your voice is critical addition to these topics and thank you sincerely for your participation in this virtual event by submitting your questions so that at the end we can answer them. Our conversation will last uh, one hour. Uh, so we're going to have also some time for Q&A. And we encourage uh, all our participants to bring your comments and questions via Q&A uh, box, which is right there. Uh, now I would like to introduce our speakers and moderator who will be conducting this uh, important conversation. Um, um, so we are going to start with uh, Flor Castillo. She is an expert in international security and governmental affairs. She has an MA in international relations and political science from, from the Graduate Institute of International Relations and Development Studies of Geneva, and a BA in international relations from Universidad Iberoamericana. She has been working on security matters in Mexico for more than 10 years, which touched even the different Faces of international organized crime and its survivors. Flor has worked for many institutions and different in Mexican federal government like Comar, Mexican Commission for Jet Refugees Aid, Safety Minister, um, and Federal Police. In her last position, General Director of International Police Affairs, she has represented the Mexican government in different UN forums like group of experts of the illicit traffic of immigrants within the framework of the United Nations Convention Against the National Organized Crime in Vienna, Austria, a group of experts on governing safe cities within the framework of the United Nations Office for Drugs and Crime, UNOD, Panama, Panama City. In the last years, she has worked for the United uh, Nations Office on Drugs and Crime conducting specific diagnosis of the Mexican government capacities to properly attempt gender-based violence survivors, uh, obviously focus on women, girls, vulnerable uh, population as well, institutional capacity building. She has developed for UNODC a human rights evaluation of the Mexican penitentiary uh, system and advised the international standard implementation program. Um, Welcome very much, uh, uh, Flor, to this uh, first uh, series. Our next uh, guest speaker is Lindsay Robertson. Robertson. Uh, she is an experienced state and federal prosecutor 
who serves as the senior legal counsel for the Human Trafficking Institute. Most recently, she served as a trial attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit. She began her legal uh, career as a law clerk for the Honorable James T. Fox in the Eastern uh, District of North Carolina. Lindsay has also served as a prosecutor for the state of North Carolina and spent several years uh, litigating in the private sector in New York and North Carolina. During her time as a state prosecutor, Lindsay dropped the Safe Harbor Act for victims of sex trafficking in North Carolina, which became effective in 2013. She prosecuted the first conviction under the new law in September 2014. And in January 2015, the North Carolina Human Trafficking Commission presented Lindsay the Prosecution Award for her work and on legislation and prosecution of human trafficking cases. Lindsay has traveled internationally to work with survivors and populations vulnerable to trafficking, including assisting with humanitarian aid projects in Ethiopia and Costa Rica. She also serves as an adjunct professor uh, at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, where she teaches courses in human trafficking and has lectured on criminal law. She's a graduate of the University of North Carolina. Welcome, Lindsay, to this series. Uh, Sarah Godoy, she is a doctoral student, graduate research assistant, and Royster Fellow at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the School of Social Work. Her area of research focuses on youth and young adults impacted by commercial sexual exploitation in the juvenile justice and child welfare system and their intersection with healthcare and social services as well as technology. Sarah has been a research associate in UCLA, which is University uh, Los Angeles David uh, Griffin School of Medicine since 2017. She is currently the co-investigator of a pilot study focused on reproductive and sexual health among youth in foster care with histories of commercial sexual exploitation. She was lecturer in the Department of Social Welfare at UCLA, USCLA between 2018 and 2020. Sarah conducted preliminary research in the red light district of Tijuana, Mexico, and practices social work with women and children in brothels of Old Delhi, India, red light district. She has published 13 peer review articles and abstracts to research reports and nine newsletters and magazine articles, including five articles in Forbes magazine. In 2017, Sarah was named number 20 of the top 100 human trafficking and slavery influence living. Sarah earned her master's in social welfare at UCLA. Welcome, Sarah. Sandy Perez, uh, our moderator today, Recently, she joined the Office of Trade and Labor Affairs in the Bureau of International Labor Affairs at the Department of Labor as a senior international relations specialist. Uh, Sandy has more than seven years of experience working in the State Department. Her most recent position was in the office to monitor and combat trafficking in persons, um, where she serves as a policy and reports officer for Canada, Mexico, and Central America and as the lead program officer for the Western Hemisphere. 
In summer 2019, she served on an overseas detail as acting deputy political counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Panama, converting political, military, human rights, human trafficking, and migration issues. Sandy also served at the Bureau of South and Central Asia Affairs as economic desk officer in the Bureau of Oceans, Environment, and Science. She also worked at the United Nations Environment Program in Paris and at various international human rights organizations. Sandy is a 2020 International Career Advancement Program State Department Fellow. Sandy was named a 2020 Latino Next Generation National Security and Foreign Policy Leader by New America and Diversity in National Security Network. She was the Vice President for Civil Service of the State Department's Hispanic Employee Affinity Group from July 2020 to December 2020. She received her bachelor's degree from the American University of Paris and holds a master's degree from the University of New York and Middlebury uh, College. She speaks Spanish, French, and in Portuguese. <laughs> so I'm going to leave now the floor to uh, Sandy Paris. We just, uh, Sandy, I just want to, uh, on behalf of Sylvia, uh, uh, our other guest panelists, I just want to apologize. She had, uh, unfortunately, an emergency, and she's not going to be with us today. Sandy, the floor is all yours. Thank you, Dayanara, for the wonderful opening remarks and also for the for the great introductions to our panelists and to myself. I, I know they were long, so thank you for bearing in there with us to, to describe all of the wonderful um, actions and activities that our panelists have done. And, you know, I'm just really honored to be with here with you all moderating the session um, because really you all have an outstanding background and have so much expertise and knowledge that I'm excited to really bring that out today and, and really um, really have a conversation um, today and, and have our audience um, also be able to ask questions. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about what will happen. Um, so the run of the show will be um, that I would like for each panelist to maybe have a, take a cup like a minute or two to um, briefly make any remarks that they want to make regarding the issue. I know that you've already been introduced, so no need to say that part unless you want to add something uh, regarding your background that would be interesting for us to know um, um, for this discussion today. Um, um, I will then ask um, a few prepared questions um, to each panelist, um, and then we will open it up to question and um, answers from the public, and then we will close with some remarks. Um, first of all, I wanted to um, take some time to thank you and, and welcome everyone to this panel. Um, thank you to the panelists, as Yanaida said, um, for agreeing to come here and share your expertise and your insights with us today on this very delicate subject, which is the subject of child trafficking in the region in all of its forms. Um, for context, um, the National Human Trafficking Hotline statistics show a 25% jump in human trafficking cases from 2017 to 2018 in the US. This includes both sex trafficking and labor trafficking cases. Of more than the 23,500 runaways reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in 2018, one in seven were likely victims of child sex trafficking. The issue of human trafficking throughout the rest of the Americas is a complex and nuanced one as well. 
Um, but let us dive in um, so we can have a conversation about this. Um, uh, Floor, can I ask you to uh, really uh, briefly make any, any opening comments that you would like to make about yourself? Thank you. Um, yes, thank you very much, Sandy. Um, first of all, I want to say that I am very honored to be sharing this panel with all you colleagues. You're remarkable. <laughs> and uh, I'm very happy to be here right now. Um, yes, I think that um, I would like to say that for me it's very important when we are talking about uh, international crimes like uh, human trafficking to give a, a human perspective. I know that, that most of the times we are focusing on numbers and uh, really uh, hard security um, matters, but I think it is as equal as important to give this human perspective and I will be focusing a little bit on that. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Flor. Um, uh, Sara, if you want to give some um, of your remarks as well. Thank you. Sure. Um, just want to echo the sentiments. I'm very honored to be part of this panel. I encourage participants to ask questions, um, things that maybe you've always wondered and didn't know or have anyone to kind of check in with about things, uh, human trafficking related issues. So please um, ask any and all questions. I agree, definitely want to come with this at a person-centered perspective. Um, and really think about the person first and then their experience of trafficking and not letting their experience of trafficking overshadow their personhood. Um, yeah, just welcome and thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, totally agree with both of your comments so far about having victim-centered approaches um, to the issue, right? Because oftentimes I think that can get lost when we're looking at numbers, right? And we forget to remember that these are human beings that, um, you know, that, that we need to protect. So I think you're completely right. Um, Lindsay, can I ask our, um, you to really briefly also give any, um, anything that you wanna share at the beginning? Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really just honored to be here as Floor said and all of the, the bios are so impressive. <laughs> um, I feel a little out of my depth, but I also, um, you know, like many of you have been working on this issue for over a decade. And when we talk about victim-centered, I think my experience as a prosecutor is, is a little bit different in the sense that that is a, a perspective shift that we've been trying to encourage over the last you know, 10, 15 years. And I think we've made some progress, but I think that we still have a long way to go. Um, and so I, you know, bringing that practical experience of having been someone that's working in advocacy from the criminal justice perspective, but also trying to keep in mind the importance of being victim-centered in our prosecutions and what does that really mean for success and what does that really mean in practicality, I think is often something that we, we talk about it, but we also need to make sure that we're, we're doing it and we're making policy choices that implement it. And so that's, that's something that's been really near and dear to my heart, both working on state level issues um, and then national level issues at uh, DOJ and now international levels as well. Thank you so much, uh, Lindsay. And I'm just so thrilled to have a prosecutor with us um, to talk about these issues, right? Um, because um, they're they're very difficult, and as you said, you know, um, we've been so we've been making advances in being able to, um, you know, uh, really train and have our whole criminal justice system uh, system understand these challenges of uh, um, 
that um, that are lived by uh, by human trafficking victims by survivors, right? So um, I think your perspective will be very valuable in this conversation. So I, I appreciate that very much. Um, so let us just, um, I guess, um, first of all, I, I want to say thank you once again. And um, I think most of the audience may have notions of what human trafficking is. I myself had a vague idea before entering the human trafficking field more than six years ago, um, when I realized that it is much more complex and much more prevalent than I had imagined. Um, so Sarah, can you please define our topic? What is human trafficking? Sure, so I wanna preface in giving a definition of what human trafficking is by saying that there are a lot of definitions and it will depend on where you go in the legislation um, national legislation, state legislation that will define what trafficking is in your locality. Um, but we do have the United Nations Palermo, Palermo Protocol, which gives us a good working definition for understanding human trafficking. So I'm going to start by saying that there are three forms of trafficking that we talk about. We have labor trafficking, also known as um, domestic servitude, forced labor. We have human sex trafficking. Um, sex trafficking can include child sex trafficking, commercial sexual exploitation, and we also have organ trafficking. Um, and really depending on where you are, there will be different emphasis on who are the focus of uh, the conversation. But largely we understand human trafficking as using a for or an action means um, for the purpose of for a purpose of exploitation. And so meaning folks are you know either recruited, they're transported, they don't necessarily need to be transported, um, but they can be transported um, across lines, boundaries, um, using coercion and other means like force manipulation, um, to induce a person into either sexual activity, commercial sexual activity like transactional sex, pornography, um, labor such as working in a home and domestic servitude, something like that, um, agricultural fields, fishing industries, um, or organ trafficking as well. And so the removal of actual organs. Um, I will also mention there's one important caveat in the Palermo product protocol specifically for children who have experienced sex trafficking. And that is that there is no um, means that needs to be proven. So a youth, any youth who is induced in commercial sexual activity for anything being exchanged to the benefit of anybody, whether that mon be monetary or not, is deemed a person who is sex child sex trafficked. And so um, I think that's really important because oftentimes we think that there is not that caveat. And fortunately, that same caveat does not ex explicitly exist for children who are labor trafficked as well. So there's a discrepancy in how we define human trafficking there. Further, um, we also know that um, human trafficking does not have to cross boundaries. There's this misconception that you need to cross a line. You need, there needs to be movement for something to happen. However, we see you know, youth and adults who are trafficked within their own localities and even within their homes by family members, caretakers, acquaintances, and whatnot. Um, so there does not need to be movement for there to be human trafficking. 
Thank you so much for that definition. And um, as you mentioned, there are very clear, um, important elements to the definition um, regarding children, right? There's no need to have a means for children. Um, and so I also appreciate the fact that you highlighted um, the fact that it requires no movement, right? Because oftentimes you're right, there is confusion. Um, that uh, from people that believe that you must have, you know, um, crossed a border for it to be human trafficking. And as you stated, it could be within your own community. It can happen anywhere, right? It, it can be um, as long as you have the three elements which you describe the act, the means and the purpose, it will, it can be considered human trafficking. So I really appreciate that distinction because contrary to what maybe we would, um, um, defined as migrant smuggling, for example, that that does require a crossing of a border. Um, and it's really um, a crime against the, the laws of a country, the immigration laws of a country. Really, human trafficking is a crime against a person, against a person. It's the exploitation of a person. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. Um, can you, um, if you, uh, if you don't mind uh, talking a little bit about Sarah about um, any um, I know it's difficult to have numbers and data for um, you know, estimates of, 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 of victims of human trafficking, but have you seen anything that would be helpful in giving us an idea of how prevalent is this crime, right? Like how, you know, um, you know, maybe maybe worldwide estimates, if if those are easier to find, that would give us some perspective as to how it may be prevalent within our region of, of the US and the Americas, really. Sure. Um, so folks in the anti-trafficking field, I think, talk about all the time that there really are no great estimates of human trafficking because this is a hidden crime, because it's difficult to really disentangle when folks are actually being trafficked or exploited um, because our methodologies are just not strong enough to actually quantify the prevalence or scope of human trafficking. Um, but we live in a world where people want to know, well, how many people are being exploited? And so um, in the United States, we don't really have a great estimate. We estimate that among children, hundreds of thousands potentially are trafficked each year. Um, but that's based on a research study that is now more than it's about more than two decades old. Um, and it's still continuously cited. And so Oftentimes folks, you know, really emphasize that it's maybe not necessarily about the number um, as a whole, but we have small samples and small populations throughout the United States that we can say, well, here in this court, for example, there were 360 youth who were trafficked, or here in this locality, we have hundreds of youth. And so um, I think shifting how we think about it to know that we can't necessarily put like a rubber stamp, this is the number, um, but there are you know, folks within our communities who are being trafficked every moment of every single day and every year. Um, still, we do have estimates from the International Labor Organization that is estimated that um, tens of millions of folks are trafficked each year, predominantly labor trafficked, um, which is actually a shift from how we conceptualize human trafficking, because oftentimes in the United States, at least, we largely talk about sex trafficking of folks. 
Um, but we know that folks in diverse populations are experiencing labor trafficking likely at higher rates. Um, we don't have great estimates of organ trafficking. Um, and so that's really not something that, that I can provide. But if you are interested in looking at the numbers and the methodologies from the international labor organizations, those were published in 2016. Um, and in total, it was about, I think 4.5 folks who were sex trafficked. And I believe um, 20 and the number is escaping me now, but I think maybe 20,000 who were labor trafficked in particular, um, 24.9 million were labor trafficked. And um, so, yeah, we see millions of people across the world in every space being impacted by this. Thank you so much, Sarah. It looks like Lindsay, you may have something that you wanted to add to this. So I'll let you chime in if you do. If you don't, that's okay. But I, I saw your your microphone unmute. So oh. um, no, I, I would echo um, what Sarah was saying about the difficulty of prevalence is is something we face all the time. You know, the I work with the Human Trafficking Institute now, which is an NGO that works both domestically in the U.S. but also partners with countries, including Belize. And so, you know, for example, we're commissioning a full countrywide prevalence study on the prevalence of sex trafficking in Belize. And so just the process of undergoing how painstaking the methodology of coming up with what's appropriate, as Sarah said, what are the definitions that the quantitative and qualitative surveys going out and essentially trying to um, conduct these surveys with a hidden population is really difficult. Um, and so I'm seeing that firsthand both in our, our prevalence study in Belize and also we're conducting a smaller um, study in Uganda because Uganda has 40 million people and Belize has 400,000 people. So, um, so I do, I just wanted to echo that I think prevalence is really difficult. That ILO number um, that came from 2016, 2017, that 24.9 million, um, you know, they also struggled with definitions. Do we include forced marriage? Right, like do we include forced late, like what are the definitions that we're including? And so when you look at these numbers over the last several years, um, you gotta be really careful about what the definitions are because those numbers can appear very disparate. We're not sure about their accuracy, but at the very least we wanna make sure that we know what they're purporting to include. Um, so I just wanted to echo how difficult that is to answer as far as the question um, because the, the research has varied widely, but equally importantly, so has the methodology. Thank you so much, Lindsay. And I appreciate um, both of you highlighting the difficulty in really doing um, the prevalence, right? Because um, as you both mentioned, it is a hidden crime, very difficult to measure. Um, and then when you um, when you are to measure, then you come up against the challenge of definitions, right? And different countries define it differently. Fortunately, in, um, in the Americas, so the US and all of the Americas, we have all of the countries that have signed up to the Palermo Protocol, right? So meaning that they have their um, domestic legislation against human trafficking that defines human trafficking. But even within that, there are differences. So as you both mentioned, it is very difficult to, to track. Um, so I Sorry, I think I put myself on mute. Um, if we move on to the next question. Um, so a report launched by the UN Office on Drugs and Crime in February of this year highlighted that the share of children among detected trafficking victims has tripled while the share of boys has increased five times in the past 15 years. 
girls um, are mainly trafficked for sexual exploitation. But as, as Sarah mentioned, you know, we're noticing also, um, you know, forced labor. Um, and while boys are used for forced labor. Um, so this is very concerning. Um, so can you please, Flor, describe what the situation is for children in the region? How are children vulnerable to human trafficking? Um, I'll let you start and then maybe we can have Sarah and Lindsay compliment. That would be um, great. Thank you, Sandy. Um, yes, I'm gonna focus on the children in the border because to cover the whole country will be very long lasting. So I will start by putting on the table the fact that right now we are facing in Latin America a migration emergency. Um, and just to put it in numbers and give you a more realistic overview of what is happening right now, um, I'm gonna share some data from UNICEF and UNHCR, uh, which says that from January to March of this year, only three months, we have seen 31,500 Red, uh, irregular migrants identified. Um, from this number, 3,500 were children and 1,300 of them were unaccompanied children. What is interesting here um, from these numbers is that we're seeing an increase of nine times in two months. The original number uh, in January was 380 children and we are uh, closing the trimester with 3,500, which is a very significant increase. And to this number, we have to add that we have received 3,350 Mexican children that were returned from the US. So um, what is important here to say is that we are talking about children who are in very vulnerable conditions, and most of the studies and the field service report that the main causes for migration, the, fir the first one is that they are running away from different forms of violence, which include domestic violence, organized crime, um, threats, political violence, institutional violence, which is, is very important. The second, on second place, it is the family re reunification and a migrant tradition, which talks about that these children are looking forward to see their families uh, across the border. Um, on, on the third place, there is a natural disasters. And on fourth place is the low income and poverty, which by that by now has been worsened due to COVID-19 pandemic. So um, this shows a highly vulnerable group of children uh, who are at constant risk. And if these situations um, were not enough, we have to keep in mind that they are facing um, a lot of uncertainty about their future. And when I am talking about their future, I am talking about, I'm talking about the immediate future, like where am I gonna sleep tonight? Am I gonna be deported or detained? Am I gonna be able to see my family again? Am I gonna survive this process? I mean, these questions are questions that they are asking themselves right now. So this, this has a, a, a direct implication into their lives. Also, they have a very important lack of information. Most of them doesn't know about their rights. They are able to ask for asylum here in Mexico just because they are under 18 years old, but, um, and they are not eligible to be detained, but they doesn't know that. And even worse than not, not knowing about their rights, 
uh, is the fact that sometimes they doesn't even know where they are. And I mean, geographically, they don't know um, in which country they are and how far or close they are to their final destination. So we are talking about that the gaps of information here are paramount and, and has very important implications for them. And I know that I already talked about violence that they are facing uh, in their original countries, but also while they are traveling, they are suffering before and during their process, their migration pro process, different types of violence that, uh, are, that um, yes, all of these circumstances has an important impact on their physical and mental health, which makes them very vulnerable and very um, easy to access to migrant smugglers and traffickers. And as you just uh, said, Sandy, uh, UNODC, the, the office from the United Nations for Drugs and Crime says that children and adolescents are particularly vulnerable. One in three victims of the whole number of, of um, trafficker survivors are under 18 years old. Uh, and, and as you said, this proportion has been tripled in the past 15 years, but the thing is that um, they represent the help of the victims identify in countries with big inequalities like Central America. And um, most of them are sexual uh, exploited and, um, and victims from uh, forced labor. So I would like to, to finish this um, argument by saying that this is even worse right now because of the pandemic. And we are expecting to have a significant increase in these numbers as a consequence of the upgrowth of the population in uh, drastic economic needs drive from unemployment rise, plus the fact that organized crime has adapted very well to the new normal, which include IT solutions that allow them to move their criminal activity to online facilities, um, where they may act undercover with a lot of impunity and also which make survivors became less visible to the authorities than they were before. So if in the past it was very difficult to have um, a number to track, right now it will be even more difficult. Thank you. Thank you so much, Flor, for really um really describing the conditions that create vulnerabilities for the children in the region. Um, you mentioned many of them and you mentioned one of them, well, a situation in which COVID, um, the pandemic that is currently happening is really impacting and not, and, and for the worst, um, the vulnerability of, of children to trafficking. I don't know if, if, if Sarah or, or Lindsay, you would like to add regarding this aspect um, that this very concerning trend that we're seeing regarding the COVID, the impact of COVID on, on trafficking. And, um, and really, um, it, from what I'm reading, it's making it easier for traffickers to do their, to, to do their exploitation of victims. So if you want to add something, that would be great. Yeah, I think... Um... This intersection of, of technology has been happening for a long time with exploitation, and it has had a hand in every component of trafficking, right? From recruitment 
the initial meeting that used to take place face-to-face. -face, and now that recruitment can happen online and utilizing a number of different strategies. Um, but obviously as, as the whole world moves its life online and, and it displays its life online, it, it, that also displays some of those potential vulnerabilities to traffickers with social media. Um, and it makes it very easy or easy for traffickers to speak specifically to youth and children and sometimes posing as another child, you know, posing as, as whatever a friend, whatever it takes to get that recruitment complete. But technology is also, you know, complicit in, in not just the recruitment, but then ultimately the communication that takes place, sometimes the control and coercion, because phones can obviously be used to show locations to traffickers, to track their victims, to know where they're at at all times. And then the solicitation of buyers <clears throat> happens online frequently as well. You know, they're so, it's so simple now to go online and essentially purchase human beings as a commodity. And that can happen solely, you know, online, which lowers the ability of law enforcement to to see what's happening, what historically has happened outdoors, now happening inside behind closed doors online. There's an added level of anonymity for the buyer. There's also a level of protection for the trafficker um, because they're sort of a, a third party. There's some plausible deniability there to their involvement in the scheme. Um, and then even now we're looking, now we're seeing more actual exploitation happening online. So the creation of child sexually explicit material that happens online, that in and of itself is a crime, but then it can be mass produced, right, as pornography that's going out into the world. And so the the internet, online platforms, social media, we, you know, the studies are showing just a tremendous increase. I think that UNODC said from 2007 to 2015, there was a 70% increase of what was happening online. Um, you know, and, and the Human Trafficking Institute where I work, we we publish a, a federal report yearly just on U.S. cases. So I'm just speaking of U.S. cases. Um, but we we historically see that, you know, between 35, 40 percent of cases that are being prosecuted. This is not a prevalent study. I need to make that disclaimer. But the cases being prosecuted, 40 percent of those cases are originating with recruitment online of, of victims. And so there's just such a prolific involvement there, you know, and you see that with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, you see their numbers going up. And so I think it's a little early to know what the full impact of COVID is going to be. But to Floor's point, the vulnerabilities are exacerbated. You know, children spending more time at home, unsupervised, in less certain times, poverty is increasing, you know, losing a parent to the pandemic or, you know, parents just not being around as much obviously creates very fertile ground for exploitation. So, and I, and I think that that's going to impact different populations and cultures differently. And yet I think it's going to, I think we're going to see sort of a, a, a shift and a trend um, in the next few years that we'll definitely look back and point to, to COVID and say, that was, that was a really pivotal time. And so now more than ever, being aware of what are those vulnerabilities, those pre-existing vulnerabilities and recognizing the internet now, now may be used more than ever to, to exploit those vulnerabilities. Um, just to build upon what's already been said, I think a hidden vulnerability that we don't talk about often, and I think is understudied is um, the ways in which parents might put their own children at risk by having public accounts, posting pictures of their children, the names of the children, the ages of the children, where the children are located, you know, a lot of really sensitive and personally identifiable information that's readily available and accessible to really anybody. 
Um, and so I think that's something that, you know, it's it's really underexplored, but it does offer a gateway um, to access to some of these youth and children. Um, a second point, and I'm so glad that sex fires were brought up because I think oftentimes we have these conversations and we talk about folks who've been victimized. We talk about folks who are traffickers and we don't talk about sex buyers, but really, I mean, sex buyers do drive this market and knowing that there are entire discussion boards, websites dedicated to sex buyers, to really like helping sex buyers both build community and locate where they can access sex, how much they should be paying for, who's available, and then also distributing images of folks who they've previously purchased sex for oftentimes without that person's knowledge. And so thinking about, I think holistically, um, when we think about trafficking, you know, we need to think about all of the players, including those who are purchasing sex. Thank you so much. Um, I agree with you. Um, I want to thank you for your for your thoughts on this for um, for Sarah, Lindsay, and Flor um, because it, it's a heavy discussion, right? And there's a lot that we can say when we ask about what is a situation of of, of child trafficking in the region, right? Um, and how are they vulnerable and, and in what ways are they more increasingly vulnerable now in, in this age of technology? And um, so I, I appreciate your thoughts. And I, you know, it is very frustrating to hear this and um, it's, it's very concerning um, to hear this, but I wanted to shift into a question about um, what we can do. So this is a full question with, with three parts. So please bear with me. Um, but I wanted to ask, what are some of the best practices to combat human trafficking? What should governments and civil society be doing regarding this? Um, and how do we ensure that victims are not re-victimized um, once they're removed from their trafficking situation? Um, Lindsay, you've had great experience with HTI and in your um, federal prosecutor position. I don't know if you want to start us off with giving us some of the best practices. What, what should governments be doing and what should civil society be doing um, regarding human trafficking? Sure. Um, like you said, it's a big question. I think that, you know, first of all, making sure that your, our laws are, are um, the rule of law is set up in a way in a framework that protects victims and identifies victims appropriately. Um, I know that, you know, Sarah mentioned the UN protocol, if you're under 18 um, enforcement, we don't have to prove coercion was applied in order to compel your commercial sex act in order to prosecute that if the victim's under 18. But, you know, when I was working as a prosecutor in North Carolina, our state laws did not mirror that. And we treated, you know, 16 year olds as adults for a long time until safe harbor legislation was passed in 2013. So I think one of the first assessments we can do in government, you know, agencies and societies and practitioners is saying, you know, what's the framework here? Are we adequately protecting the vulnerable populations that we're seeking to, to protect from, from these crimes and from this, you know, vulnerability? Are we part of the vulnerability? You know, are we creating, are we adding to it? So I think that's a first step. Once we make sure that the framework is appropriate, um, and that includes obviously, being able to identify victims, protect victims, and adequately prosecute offenders. You know, do we have a framework that adequately prosecutes offenders? Um, and you know, so and that includes traffickers, facilitators, buyers, corporate liability. You know, for those corporations and and business entities that are engaging and involved and complicit in allowing trafficking to happen and exploitation to happen. So so all of that is encompassed in this assessment. And then I think, you know, just from my own experience, um, both at the state level and then at federal level, what I've seen as one of the 
the best practices for, for effectively combating trafficking is creating subject matter experts within enforcement agencies. And so having folks who understand this very complex nature of human trafficking and this idea of what coercion means, what it means to coerce someone, learning how to identify it, learning what is allowable under the statute, understanding, as Sarah was saying, there's some myths around this idea that it has to be physical force or violence and, and very quickly dispelling those myths by having subject matter experts saying, actually, if I can compel someone through nonviolent coercion, through more subtle forms of coercion, those are equally statutorily prohibited, but they're also way more effective for the trafficker. So, so learning how to identify, you know, what is happening, the hidden population, um, specialized enforcement units really go a long way in this area. And so having law enforcement officers, prosecutors, multidisciplinary teams working together with victim service providers, because, you know, again, when I was a new prosecutor in North Carolina and starting to see these cases come through court and see victims, see signs of, of victimization of trafficking, there, there were no victim services to connect those survivors to. And so without victim services, we can't have a victim center prosecution. And if we can't have a victim-centered prosecution, we're very likely not going to have an effective prosecution or, or a conviction. And so understanding these components are really part and parcel of a successful um, method of combating trafficking and it's painstaking. And I think one of the challenges is that it also takes resources, you know, and we've dealt with this, I've dealt with this on the state level, then the federal level, you know, being a subject matter expert at the Department of Justice and traveling and handling cases all over the country to try to provide support um, you know, to regions who maybe hadn't handled a forced labor case before. You know, there's there's very few, there's regions, there are districts in our country in the United States that have never had a forced labor prosecution. I mean, we prosecuted more sex trafficking cases in the United States this year than we've prosecuted forced labor cases in all 20 years since the Trafficking Victims and Protection Act. And that's not a prevalence assessment, right? So that's an enforcement issue. So looking at, you know, where have we seen the best um, impact in enforcement? It's where we have those subject matter experts who are helping our interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary teams, our frontline workers, people who are likely to come into contact with victims, whether that's in the court system or the child welfare system or the school system and equipping them to, to recognize signs of trafficking. And then importantly, who do they call? Who's gonna take that call? Who's gonna have the authority and capacity to actually investigate, do something about that? That's a huge step. And that's what we're really encouraging with our partner countries where we're working within governments to say, you know, how can we help support the build out? You know, even if it starts very, very small with two, three, four people, but it really, really can make a huge difference and have a ripple impact of, okay, this works really well. Now, let, how can we replicate this? Um, but when you're working where resources are slim, which they often are, um, you've got people doing this as collateral duty in addition to pulling a domestic violence caseload or a child sex assault caseload. And it's, it's, it's difficult. And as you said, Sandy, like it's a really heavy topic. And these cases take a lot out of the people who are working them and they require a lot of resources and they often go on for a very long time. Um, and so they're very complex on a lot of levels, but I would just say sort of my experience in the last decade has been building a team of people who are really committed to the issue, having a legal framework that works to protect victims and adequately address offenders. Um, and then being able to you know, lean on each other for your, your specific subject matter expertise. This is who I call for victim services and shelter. This is who I'm gonna to call to get the investigation started. This is my star prosecutor who I know is gonna dig into this case, right? And we're gonna we're gonna be able to set something up. So I think those for me have been huge game changers um, 
in, in combating trafficking on, with the criminal justice system, at least. Thank you so much, Lindsay. You've given us a lot to think about regarding the, the tools that we need, what we need to think about, the fact that we need this to be um, a multi-partner initiative um, where it's not just one agency that's going to um, really reduce child trafficking or human trafficking, but it's really the whole approach, the whole of government or the whole of, of community really, because we need also our NGOs and our civil society who do victim protection very well. We need them to engage as well. So it's not just gonna be government. It's not just gonna be civil society. It's gonna be everybody that engages to, um, and, 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 and certainly appreciate the comment you, that you made about specialized units because during my sort of experiences and work um, traveling to the countries in Latin America, I realized that those countries that did better in terms of their efforts on um, human trafficking were the ones that had these specialized prosecutor units, had these specialized courts even, which, you know, it's not very common and it's difficult, right? Those, that there are some countries that do have specialized courts for human trafficking with specialized training, right? And it's continuous training because as you said, there are always, traffickers are always going to be adapting to the new way of, of life and doing things. And they're gonna be smarter and a step ahead of us if, if we do not get ahead of the, of the game, right? If we do not train our specialized people continuously. So um, I think it's super important topic. Um, Flor, I know that you had ideas about um, uh, what we can do, what else we can do to, um, what are the areas of improvement that, that we have? Um, what must we address better if you want to um, um, speak about that, please? Um, yes, thank you, Sandy. Um, it's very similar to what Lindsay just said, and I, I love this part of the uh, legal framework because here in Mexico, we have really good legal framework, but always the challenge is how to implement these, uh, these laws. So um, I think that one of the, of the things that we can do here in Mexico is focus a lot on capacity building, which also opens the door to international cooperation because um, here first, I mean, not only in Mexico, when we are talking about these, these matters, I think that first respondents uh, in this case of the border immigration officers, prosecutors, and personnel from health services are key uh, stakeholders uh, because they are the, the, the first filter for the children and adolescents to access justice. So if we don't have them um, trained in, in, the, in the international standards and on the, on the best practices, then um, we will be failing since the very beginning. So I think it's very urgent to, to create these, these programs for training, uh, focus on child protection, on GBP, on trafficker sur survivors attendance, because it's an specialized um, training that we should be given to these public servers. And um, not necessarily they have them. And also I think that um, Adding to this training, it is very important to sensitize them, them about the, the courses of the causes, the causes of the migration, the, the how they should treat survivors. They stigmatize all these ideas they have about uh, the victims in order to, to avoid victimizing again. Also uh, talk about the proper use of language because um, 
even in this matter when we are talking about gender-based violence, sometimes um, we are talking about victims where we were we should be talking about survivors because it has an important implication. And um, perhaps not all the people should know this, but they should. I mean, the first respondents and government um, first filters should be should be knowing this this type of of information. Um, so, yeah, I think that we should change these. Um, this view and start treating them as children and adolescents and survivors when they are when they are uh, adults and instead of treating them as as criminals because sometimes when they are migrants they are treated as criminals and not as, as survivors and also i will say that um this affects really in in mexico and and is uh, how we um manage uh, our our shelters because within the migration law amended, which prohibits the detention of the children and adolescents, um, the, the increase of migratory flows and the pandemic um, ask us to have uh, more, more shelters. So um, then the, 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 here in Mexico, uh, because in the past we, I mean, that was not a priority in the agenda. Now we have a regulation in Mexico. Now we don't have a regulation in Mexico for uh, establishing and administrating shelters. So I think that here is a big room for um, start adopting um, international practices and international um, standards um, in order to get um, SOPs to, to manage these, these shelters. And because now we have the spaces, but we cannot assure that these are dignified and safe, and safe spaces for, for the migrants and for the survivors. So uh, we need specialized children and adolescents shelters with complementary services like legal advisory, psychological first aid, health, WASH. And then I think this is a very big area of opportunity uh, for learn from other countries, from other shelter protection models which I know in the United States has uh, very, very good uh, examples and start to drafting our own SOPs based on international standards and start certifying them because we always need to have um, an incentive for, for the stakeholders to, to act right. So I think that a, a program of, of certification would be a, a good idea to implement here in Mexico for, for the shelters. Thank you. So, Lord, that is very insightful. And I like that you um, really placed emphasis on victim protection, right? And ensuring that we have the standards necessary in these specialized um, victim shelters uh, and, and that, um, that the services are comprehensive and that they're receiving um, all that they need to ensure their recovery, right? And they're non uh, Revictimization, um, right? Because that's important. Um, because you know we don't want um, victims or survivors to fall back into the cycle of trafficking, which in many cases can happen. And so, ensuring that we have these services for them available and um, that are up to standard, up to international standards, um, is so important. So I agree with you. I we have one final question um, for um, this panel, and then and then I think we have one panel question. So I wanted to get to to that as well. Um, the final question that we have um, is um, that oftentimes, as you know, we discuss, this is, you know, 
this issue is very overwhelming and can appear very overwhelming to us and we may feel powerless in many cases. Um, uh, and so how do you, um, how can we within our communities, um, what can we do to prevent child trafficking? I don't know if Sarah, this is something that you'd you know, want to take for us um, regarding um, what can we do in communities and you know, be, be beyond governments and civil society, do we have a role as you, know, you and I um, you know, working in, not working in, in the field necessarily? Yeah, I think um, you know, in order for trafficking to persist, it takes folks just kind of looking the other way or not identifying the signs of exploitation. And so I think first, get educated, learn more. This is one hour, one snippet, a couple you know, important talking points, but really we, there, we've all been in this for cumulatively decades. And we're all learning still every single day. And so, you know, engage in trainings, read more um, about it, literature that has like data and that support the claims um, and not necessarily maybe baseless claims that could be circulating through social media, which we've seen um, skyrocket within the past year, which I we don't have time to discuss today. But um, learn more, have more conversations, support the agencies that are doing the work through volunteer work, through funding. Um, you know, if you're not in the field, that's fine. Like this is, you know, there's room for everyone. If you're interested in joining the anti-trafficking field, you know, have more conversations with folks who are in it, but donate your time and your resources, um, to help supporting those who are doing the work on the ground. I think supporting legislation that is comprehensive, that is protective, um, that does prosecute and that you know really has congruence in how folks, it um, treats the folks with lived experience is really important. Um, you know, think before you post on social media, I think is a really easy one. As we're constantly on social media, I think it's it's easy to, um, take the bait and maybe repost something that we believe to be true without actually fact checking, which can actually be really harmful. So for example, there, um, the save the children hashtag and the, um, and child sex trafficking hashtags were in circulation over the past year. And we saw with the Wayfair case where it was this baseless claim that um, there were so many calls made to the human trafficking hotline about this baseless claim that the hotline was shut down. And that's a national hotline that was so influxed that they could not handle it. And so that caused a lot of issues. Human trafficking hotline came out, held webinars about it, um, but just, you know, thinking about what you're seeing a little bit more um, before kind of going out and, and claiming that this is a form of trafficking, I think is really important as well. Thank you so much, Sarah. You've given us a lot to think about of what we can do within our communities to really prevent this and um, from happening. Um, I wanted to, um, I think Lindsay wanted to add something. I just wanted to get this question out from um, one of our audience members. Um, and if you want to respond or give your final remarks as well, take it all as you want, that's fine. Um, so uh, the comment from Pascal is usually human trafficking focused is on foreigners 
Recently, he read an article of sex trafficking and there is a high percentage of African-American women and girls. Are there any resources to advocate, educate and raise awareness here at home? And I think it kind of touches a little bit about what we were just discussing, but um, I wanna give each of you an opportunity to either respond or give your final remarks to this. Um, so uh, why don't we start with Lindsay? And when, uh, when the uh, question asker was saying here at home, was that, is that US? Could I, okay, okay, great. Um, so I think, I think that, um, you know, vulnerabilities are, are just that, they're vulnerabilities. And I think that they're, when we look at, it's difficult to quantify. I was just asking one of my colleagues who we're, we're in the throes of writing our 2020 human trafficking report right now. And I was asking about, do we track um, race and ethnicity of, of our victims. And so the, the sticky part with that goes back to this idea of prevalence. Like our study is not a prevalence study. It's just looking at the cases that are prosecuted and we're limited to publicly available fine, uh, filings. And so unless the prosecutor in a case specifically mentions the race or ethnicity of a victim, we don't have that information, which leads to us sometimes to think that when they do list it, it might be skewed because they might only be listing it when like the, the victim is, is foreign born, for example. And so they might be listing that. And so we'd be careful about making statements about prevalence in that space. Um, nevertheless, I think that vulnerabilities of, you know, intersections of poverty, access to education, access to healthcare, um, being in the foster care system, our, our um, report does track pre-existing vulnerabilities, like 10% of all victims in the last year previously were in foster care where that information is made available. So if you wanna take a look at our human tracking report, um, I can put a link to that in, our, in the um, chat because that is a US-based report. And so please take a look at that. But I think in general, the question, the bigger question you're asking is more prevalence and it's hard to know that. And, and the other panelists might know some resources, but, um, but I don't know specifically. I will say one fantastic organization in the United States, Girls Education and Mentoring Services or GEMS in New York, which is survivor led by Rachel Lloyd. Um, a lot of her work has been focused on supporting um, young women and girls of color and in this space. And so I would say, you know, if you're interested in an organization that's specifically looking at that, take a look at GEMS too. And I'll plug both those links in. One thing I was just going to add really quickly to what Sarah was saying about what we can do as a society also is, you know, in addition to everything she said, which I completely echo, is all the vulnerabilities of victims of trafficking. So, you know, access to, to school, like going to school with an empty stomach, like, you know, be feeling vulnerable, already having some type of exploitation or um, abuse in your background, any of those vulnerabilities, if, if you work in any sector that could potentially address those, whether it's for potential victims or frankly for potential exploiters and traffickers and people who become buyers, like men mentoring boys is a huge component of prevention. And it's something we don't talk a lot about. Um, and, and so, and, and, and Sandy mentioned at the beginning of, um, of her talk that we've seen an uptick in victim victimization of boys um, in this area. I don't know if there's an uptick of victimization of boys or we're just doing a better job of finding it, frankly, and identifying it. Um, but boys at home on their gaming platforms, for example, that's an area in COVID that's going to have increased. And so anytime there's an opportunity, I think, to mentor youth, that's an area of prevention. Also being informed consumers about what, what items we're purchasing, where are they coming from, do we care? Because that sends a message back to corporations about child labor around the world, which happens in Latin America and Caribbean nations. So, and I know Sandy, I know you know that really well with your work. Um, so there, you know, Department of Labor and iLab has great resources and apps to look on your phone and say like, where, where could I be complicit? 
in this as, a, as an un, uninformed consumer? Where could I be more informed? Because I will say, I say this all the time when I do webinars like this, you might spend one hour at this webinar, but then that means you will be more educated than most of the people in your sphere of influence about this topic. So share the information that you learn, um, you know, reliably and, and credibly and make sure that, you know, as Sarah was saying, you're not just clicking share on things you're not, you're not checking on the factual nature of, but I think people have a lot more influence in this space than we realize because the vulnerabilities that lead to trafficking are spaces that we all touch every day. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Um, I agree with you. All of the points that you've just made and especially the one about share, like you've just learned something within an hour. There's so much more to explore and discover. So yes, share with share as responsibly and, and with who you think needs to be shared with. Um, Flor, if you want to give really briefly um, about a less in, in a minute, just any closing um, thoughts um, and then we'll move it on to Sarah and then we can close. Yes, sure. Um... Well, I, I think that uh, the first thing to do is to center the conversation on child protection models. I think that is very important and which asks us to look at them as children and adolescents first, rather than seeing them as irregular migrants that represent a problem and that have to be deported or detained. So I, I wanna make a, a, big, <laughs> a big statement about this um, because if we um, do this, we will be focusing on human development and that will enable us as a society to revert negative um, violence cycles into positive ones. So I think we must protect our children from that perspective. And um, just to, to, to add from what is already said about that everyone can do something, I would like to say for all the individuals who are listening right now that it is very important to say that uh, we should leave no room for indifference and because we all can do something. And that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Flor. Sarah? Sure. Um, I want to address the comment. While we don't have prevalent statistics on, you know, girls of color, youth of color, transgender youth, boys of color who are being trafficked, if we look at smaller data sets, we often see an overrepresentation of youth with minoritized statuses. So that could be someone who's in the LGBTQ community, a youth of color who identifies as black, is Hispanic. Um, and so thinking about, um, as Lindsay mentioned, this mix of vulnerabilities that creates, you know, really the perfect storm for folks to be trafficked, I think is really important. Um, and to, to know and realize that, you know, folks of color, youth of color are likely at greater risk because of the intersectionality of different forms of their or their identity, social identity that might be discriminated against um, because of racism, because of sexism and some of these other isms. Um, and so keeping that in mind, I think, you know, it's fair to say that folks of color, girls of color, boys of color and LGBTQ youth of color um, are at high risk for exploitation, though we can't quantify it on any kind of national or, or international um, scale. And also thinking about, you know, who are the most vulnerable folks in your locality? Um, because those are likely gonna be the ones of greatest risk um, of exploitation. But I think just a final note, um, remembering that, you know, as I said in the beginning, these are folks with lived experience. 
um, they might have been victimized, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to take on that identity of victim or even survivor. Um, I've worked with so many folks that are like, I'm just me and this happened to me, but the worst trauma was not my exploitation. It was the childhood abuse that I had, or it was this other form of child adversity that was faced. And so keeping in mind that, you know, their complexities and to these people's lived experience, and it can't be kind of just um, distilled down to one or several experiences of exploitation. Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, I want to really thank our panelists for imparting their expertise and, and sharing their closing thoughts right now and really giving us some tools to continue the fight against child trafficking, against human trafficking and for children's rights, right? Um, so I um, thank you everyone and I'll pass it on to Dianetta. I'm sorry we went over, but it was just, there's so much to talk about. I know it's always, uh, uh, we've been talking and talking and talking yesterday. Uh, President Biden, right, was talking about the violence and to combat violence from the roots, you know, uh, especially in those vulnerable countries, you know, uh, where all these people like Flor was talking. Uh, there's a lot of innocent uh, kids. They don't have technology. They don't have video uh, games. They're not using cell phones. Uh, and they are uh, victims of these uh, crimes, right? Uh, there's always a, the, the most uh, vulnerable and, and, and the poverty, obviously, that we need to, to, to work with. Uh, I believe that hopefully uh, this administration is giving us the opportunity to reconnect again with Latin America. And we continue working with these uh, programs uh, because internationally we, we have been very successful, right? We have a lot of programs, resources that we want to share, like Flor said, but locally, you know, in these regions, in these uh, countries, there's a problem when they try to implement these uh, international programs or this international cooperation. So there, I think, is where we have to, to, to work more. This is not going to be the last conversation that we're going to have, definitely. Uh, these roundtables are precisely to continue uh, the collaboration. So we definitely going to contact you afterwards and see what else we can do. How can we uh, work together? So thank you very much. Uh, uh, hopefully um, you can participate in our next seminars uh, next month. And please, uh, for the audience, uh, try to see our videos in YouTube, in our WCAPS uh, webpage. And I encourage you also to join our WCAPS uh, membership, uh, please. Uh, we have a very good uh, networking, Sandy knows she's a, she's a WCAPS uh, member. And she knows we, we, we discuss a lot of great topics and, and we have a great, great networking. So thank you very much, Sandy, uh, Lindsay, Flor, and Sarah uh, to join us today. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.